Hi, this is Kara Swisher. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is, most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business, from the smallest startups to the biggest global companies, create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn about how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. I am here with my old boss, Henry Blodgett. Henry, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. I've been trying to get you forever. Finally squeezed in a few moments between you and your, your iPhone now, right? Yes. Are you recording this? Yes, should I not be? No, go ahead. Okay. What's the purpose of recording? I don't know. Recording? I instinctively record things. I love it. I'm interviewing or whether you're interviewing, but I'm happy to turn did you it get, off. I didn't did even Did you get burned it. once? <laughs> no, I thought you were going to be tweeting through this whole time. Oh, uh, no, that, that's more, that's that more of a Kara Swisher move. <laughs> no, I haven't been burned, but uh, it's always helpful. It's not an email. What do you mean? I have a, a seared in my memory. I once talked to you early on, and you said... We were emailing a lot. You said, I know I should not like email, but I still really love email. Ah, uh, yes. It's a form you, of communication. Exactly. It's a wonderful form and dangerous, as we all know. I will catch people up who don't know who you are. You are the CEO of Business Insider. Is that the correct title That's for you? correct. When I started working with you, you were, you were the CEO of Silicon Alley Insider, which became Business Insider. You were the editor-in-chief. You had a long career on Wall Street prior to that, and then were removed from Wall Street. I was. Which forced you to become a journalist. So I started working for you in 2007. I left a year later. And then last year, once you'd been freed of, of my burden, you sold the company for a ton of money to Axel Springer. Yes. Uh, am I correct? You were yes. smiling at Didn't me. Didn't like have anything to do sure. with your No, burden. no, no. Once, once I was gone, it was, it was easier to sell. So how is it going? You're about a year and a half post-sale. You're still working for Axel Springer. Working hard, I, I believe. Yes. Well, the last year's been great. It's been a very challenging year for the industry. There are lots of, of trends taking place that are changing everybody's businesses. So we, are, we worked through that. And I would say, given the circumstances that we were working with, one of the best years we've ever had as a company. You can only control what you can control. And and we really navigated it very well, I think, and it turned out to be a good, strong year of growth, and audience and revenue continues to grow, so everything's going great. So we can talk about some of those challenges. Um, I want to dive into that a little bit. But just what is it like to build a company, 10 years, sell it, and then continue working at that company, but now you're working for someone as opposed to being the boss? Well, one of the reasons we sold to Axel Springer is that they wanted to keep us as a standalone entity. We were their entry into the United States, and, and we'd had a lot it's of big conversations. German over publisher. The, That's right. Leading German publisher and one of the leading digital publishers in Europe. We'd had a lot of conversations over the years with other companies, and, and often early on in that conversation, the question would be synergy. What can we do to smush you into our organization? And usually that is code for how many of your people can we fire. Yep. Didn't want have anything to do with that, wanted, if we were going to be partnered with an organization, wanted it to be that we continued to grow. And so really, this was a change out of our board and shareholders. And Axel Springer is a media investor. They know the media growth trajectory, and they've been incredibly supportive. It's been a first year of marriage. You yeah. obviously learn a lot about each other for the first year, but it's been great. 
But so, right, before you had a board and before you had investors and you were working for your investors long term, right? But they weren't coming in and sort of on you quarter on quarter after quarter, I assume they sort of let you run the business. I assume that's very different. And I've heard it's different with, with Axel and much more hands on. And like you say, they know the business. So it's not like you can say, trust me, this is how publishing works. Just just leave me alone here. Actually, it's the board we had before was incredibly active and updates all the time, yeah. very focused on growth. Obviously, we had a lot of professional venture capitalists and and others, Jeff Bezos involved. They want the best for the business. And it was a very much of a dialogue where we were focusing and asking questions all the time of what we could do better. And it has been a little bit different with Axel Springer. They are a public company. Quarters matter. The bottom line matters more. As a venture capital funded company, you've got more flexibility on the bottom line. There's a lot of focus on the top line. Um, and again, given some of the transitions that the industry was going through last year, there was a big learning process because the U.S. is a different market than Germany. We're about two years ahead of Germany, I think, in digital media evolution. So there was a lot of their learning about what was going on. But it actually hasn't changed that much. And in the last couple of quarters, things have been going incredibly well. And so they're focused on other opportunities. So you're alluding to this, but what I'd heard is that after you'd sold the company, about a year and a half ago, you guys then missed a few quarters in terms of uh, your projections. Is that is that true? We had a slower year, especially early on on the top line than we had thought. And and what was going on was this big shift to programmatic, which we had set up for a couple of years in so advance. So for anyone who's not, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably it, know what programmatic I, is, but it's it's robots buying and selling big Very well ads. done. Yes, exactly. It's, it's the old premium direct business. The reason Yahoo has struggled, for example, is that the business has been converting from that business to an automated business that is a lot more efficient for clients and actually a lot more efficient for publishers, but it's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar exchange. Basically, you're taking a dollar of what would have been revenue, and suddenly it's 25 cents. But the programmatic is great for clients, and it's good for us, ultimately. And so we had, we had set up to take advantage of that. But what you're saying is it, as it shifted over... That cut your top line That's faster right. it, than you expected. Ex exactly. And, and what it did was actually increase the number of clients that we're working with, and it's enabled our sales force to actually focus on much higher-end custom work, which is a business line that's growing incredibly rapidly. So if you step back from with what's happened with advertising revenue over the last two years, for us and the rest of the industry, what was almost 100% direct premium revenue. Sales, is, is, men and women selling is, something to buyers exactly. over steak or red wine or however exactly. one sells these things. <clears throat> is shifting into programmatic for most of the banners and buttons that folks see to really high-end custom. So the, the market is bifurcating into what we call the barbell. And and we've reorganized the team and refocused to really emphasize both of those. And and now that we're through that transition, things are going great, but it definitely slowed things down for a little while. And so the Axel Springer buys you $343 million plus cash, so it works out to value you guys north of $400 million in the fall of 2015. And then immediately afterwards, you guys say, Listen, new owners, I know we're in our honeymoon period, but I got to tell you something about the ad market. Turns out programmatic, you start explaining why revenue is not where, where you thought it was going to be. You go through this explanation you're going through with me. How, how does that go over? Well, it, it, again, there was a learning process for Axel Springer about what's going on in the U.S. market and understanding programmatic. And, yeah. and we were, fortunately, we're in a business where it's not like you have to go out and build a $10 billion factory. And if, if, 
things develop more slowly than you expect, suddenly um, you're really over your skis. We, we are very much able to control the growth rate of investment in editorial. So we just slowed our investment out in front of that. And ultimately, by the end of the year, everything was reaccelerating again, and that's continued into this year. And culturally, what is, what's it like to work with, with owners who are German, owners who are European? They're, you are there. Uh, they have other investments in the U.S., but you are the one major investment. The key for Axel Springer, which is, again, one of the reasons we were so excited to work with them, is they, their company is built on journalism. They were founded as a newspaper. They built a huge number of newspapers in Germany. They really care about it. And as you well know, there are better businesses than journalism. If you just care about EBITDA, for example, there are lots of other businesses that we can all go into and do much better and, and have a less competitive environment and, and so forth. But one of the things that's great about them is they really care about journalism. And so they care about what we're doing. Our mission journalistically is to delight our audience and get better every day. And they have been 100% behind that. So that is the most important cultural element of what's going on. And and right from the CEO, Matthias Duffner, on down, Matthias is a former journalist, he's what he really cares about. So um, we're in, in great hands there. I think other than that, the the next big cultural thing is, A, it's a public company. So it, the different things, as we've already talked about, goes on, go on with that. And then, B, it's just getting used to a new market. Again, it works very differently here. It's a, it's a much more fragmented and competitive digital media market than it is in Germany. I can't remember the timing of this, but but around the time that they purchased you, right before, right after, you guys were talking about saying you were saying, "I think we're going to have some kind of paywall. We're going to we're a free site. There's a research product you can buy as an add-on, but we're going to eventually start asking our, our our readers to pay for this in some way." And I haven't really seen it uh, on Twitter. A couple of weeks ago, someone showed me a screenshot of, of something that looked like you were testing a paywall. Is Are you going to ask a regular reader to pay for, for Business Insider? We're, I mean, first of all, we really believe in subscriptions. I, I think the, the lesson from Netflix and Hulu and others and the lesson from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many publications is that lots of people actually prefer to pay directly, have a different kind of experience than, they, than you have when it's ad-supported. And it really enables you to develop a different kind of journalism. You can go much deeper into niches than you can when you're building an ad business. And so what we want to do is build a fully dual revenue stream business, advertising and subscriptions. Which and is what everyone says they want to do, that's or right. especially in the media business now. And and we're, we're, we're well on our way to that. The, the research business that you mentioned is, is growing very rapidly, much faster than the ad side. It's now quite significant in terms of its size. We feel like there's a huge opportunity for that to continue to grow. And over the last three months, as you mentioned, we've started to test a more consumer-focused subscription that is on Business Insider proper. And, and we're testing a bunch of things. One is the, the meter that some folks have seen. There are other models that we're meter looking is, at, you too. Can, you can get That's 10 free right. articles, and then at some point we're going to ask right. you to pay. Which, which is one of the models that that has worked well for, for folks. And then another thing we're doing is we're offering an ad light version. A lot of people really, the reason ad blocking is growing is people don't like advertising. And totally respect that, want to serve them. And so we've created a service that has no advertising. It's incredibly fast. And 
I can buy that now. You can buy that now as a, as that. So what do, you, what do you charge me to read a Business Insider without ads? Nine ninety nine a month. Wow. Yeah. Are people buying? Yeah, they are. It's nice. Yeah, a lot of a lot of ad block folks show up, and and you have an, you have an option. And and by the way, I, you know, we completely respect everybody's right to use an ad blocker. That's fine. We do want to point out though is you can't have the content without the ads. If that is the if that's the product that we're serving, we obviously need to pay our journalists yeah. and our engineers. So we're offering now two things. One is you can whitelist the site, and we care a great deal about our experience. We're not going to shove through all sorts of crap ads. Or you can buy an ad light experience, and a lot of the ad block folks are signing up for that. It's great. So ten bucks. I think the Times is maybe fifteen bucks around that. I should know since it's my beat. I think one of the things yes, that Times that, is more expensive, it, but but not a lot more, right? I mean, the ten ten bucks a month. That's that's Netflix money. Um, it's more than uh, I think a Spotify subscription costs. Maybe right right around there. That's what a Spotify subscription costs. And we can talk about the, the history of the site and where it came from, but I think one of the things a lot of people, when you said we're going to start asking people to pay for this, they said Business Insider is a site that is consists of other people's product that you guys have aggregated and created and done a smart job with, but it's not something you would pay for. Um, are you going to create a different kind of product that pe- you think people pay for, or do you think, nope, this product by itself is good enough that we think people can pay for it? Well, I, I would say, first of all, that that description is extremely out of date based on what we are doing today. I mean, we do obviously build on stories uh-huh. that others report, especially in an environment now where you've got a new president of the United States who breaks a massive new story every five minutes practically. Obviously, media is building on each other. But we also do a huge amount of original reporting in, in many different varieties, both uh, in text and video and photos and and so forth. So everything we produce is original except for the stuff that we license from our partners, which is great for our readers and and viewers as well. So I think, you, you know, you do raise the question. It's more for us, it's more of a generational question. I am used to paying for a newspaper. It's because what I brought up doing. My parents are younger generation. Are they used to that? Millennials? Less so. And and so we do, as we are testing this, one of the questions we've been trying to answer is, is the meter the right model or is it just a premium service like Amazon Prime, which is very attractive, where they give you something you want and what we're starting with for a lot of people is ad light. They don't have the ads. It's much faster and, and lighter on mobile. Um, and then adding on to that. And, and we're very much at the testing phase at this point. So interesting. So we make our money for this modest podcast, but excellent podcast from our fine sponsors. So we're going to hear from them and come right back. Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? That's great, because if you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners will get 60% off. Visit HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R dot com slash Recode. I'm back here with Business Insider's Henry Blodger. We're talking about ad models and, and payment models. I want to go back a little bit in time 
10 years ago or so, uh, when, when you started the site and, and talk about why you ended up starting a, a website to begin with. As you said, journalism can be a fun business. There are easier businesses. There are more lucrative businesses to be in. Um, you'd been on Wall Street. For people who, who don't know that part of your life, you want to just explain why you became a famous Wall Street person? <laughs> I can't so much explain why I became a famous Wall Street person. But yes, I was when I got out of school, I was a journalist for a little while. Tiny while, right? A, a tiny while, a few years. And then I went to work on Wall Street. Um, and my journalism was local newspaper and TV. I worked at CNN Business News 150 years ago. And then ultimately went to Wall Street through a training program, became an analyst during the internet boom, rode the internet boom all the way up. You were one um, of the faces of the internet. Boom. I was indeed. When people wanted to talk about the boom in stocks, they often talked about you or to you. That's right. And early with Amazon and Yahoo and AOL, then a big, incredibly powerful company. You famously um, called Amazon at 400. Yes. And then when the internet boom imploded, um, I imploded along with it. And we talked about email earlier. One of the New York Atten Attorney General, Elliot Spitzer, found some emails that he didn't like of mine and said this reveals a huge scandal, which I disagreed with. But the emails were certainly very colorful. And as you said, that led to my leaving the industry. And in fine and, and basically barred from Wall Street. Exactly. And although I'm still you know, horrified by that, and it was a just a searing experience, both from a learning perspective, and I also just felt like, my goodness, you know, I feel like I've let so many people down. And I felt like basically it was like a dishonorable discharge and, and so forth. I did, I felt like I, I want to do something that enables me to regain some of the trust that I've lost and use the skills that I have. And, and fortunately, the journalism was something that I knew how to do. And was that, was there was that an something... editor who was welcomed me back, which was great. Was that something you wanted? Did you think, all right, I'm out of Wall Street. I'm going to do journalism. Was there a middle period where you thought there might be something else you could do? I, I assume there was a way for you to work with money but not be in Wall Street that probably would have worked out well or could have worked out well yeah, for you. Yeah, I, I consulted for a couple of years. I wrote a book. I wrote – I started freelancing around and, and doing some TV here and there. And then ultimately where I really decided to – go back into it full time was covering the Martha Stewart trial for Slate. Slate was the one that really welcomed me back, which was wonderful. And then in 2007, a, a CEO that I knew from the internet era, Kevin Ryan from DoubleClick called and he said, look, I'm thinking about starting a tech site focused on New York, like a tech crunch for New York. Um, what do you think? And I said, wow, that sounds great. You know, I've always been interested in companies after watching all the, the boom during the 1990s and Love journalism. This is a new medium. Hopefully, it will create the opportunity for new companies to be built. Um, it sounds really exciting, and we went. And then we immediately hired Me. Peter Kafka from Forbes and Dan Fromer from Forbes. Who's now like my brought boss. Over the, uh, we brought over the Forbes team, which was great. And the three of us were banging away in the loading dock of another yep. startup panicked that if one of us went on vacation, traffic would drop, which it did. Um, but we figured out over the course of that year, what we could do that was different and valuable, and ultimately it's built from there. So like you said, the premise originally was we're going to do local business news, New York, and then we'll do Boston, and we'll spread out. We'll do everywhere but Silicon Valley because we figured that was covered. And I think a couple months into it, you basically, the light bulb went off for you, and you said, there's no such thing as local internet news. I mean, maybe there is, but that's not where we're going to go. Let's make this a national publication. Do you remember what sort of changed your mind? I think the three of us saw it quickly, which was we would write about 
many New York startups, and then we'd write one story about Apple, and suddenly half the readers are coming in from California. We, with my Wall Street background and your years in technology, both you and Dan felt like we could really add a lot to the overall technology conversation. And so we jumped into that, and gradually the New York focus faded away. Then after about a year, we realized, hey, we should do this in other areas of business too. And Wall Street was natural for me, obviously, having that background. So we began to expand. And then one more year, so second year in, we basically said, look, we need to have a Wall Street journal for the digital generation. Let's become that. And and that became the mission. And so you're pretty frank about this. You, you just mentioned it in, in passing here. So you, you had two goals here, it seems to me, when you started this business. One, which is, I need a job. I want to build something. I want to make money. And two, I want to reclaim my name. I want to be known as something other than disgraced former Wall Street analyst. Can you blame me? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I mean, I, I don't think many people sort of figured out that was an important thing for you, that this is Henry's business and this is Henry's next business. But for you, it was very much you had a public name and you feel like you sort of wanted to clear it or at least write a new chapter for yourself. I don't think a lot of people get that chance, which is pretty cool because you've done it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't – look, I had really young kids. I didn't want to disappear and quit. I mean, what happened to me was I think – it was a product of the period. You know, obviously, I look back and say so you're a moron for writing, calling a stock a piece of junk in email, taken out of context. It does look horrible, and and so forth. The secondary conversation about that that you know stocks go up even when their Wall Street deems them low quality or what have you. It's very subtle, so you're not going to see it in the ratings. But it was a it was an incredibly public humiliation. And I did. I definitely wanted to. I didn't want to quit. I was young and at young family. I wanted to do try to do something else. Because you could have packed know. up and gone somewhere else and gone into an industry where you wouldn't have had a public name and you could have just been Henry Blodgett, smart guy. I guess. <laughs> um, yes, but I also. I really loved what I did as an analyst in terms of, of the, the core skills of, spe- of interviewing and analyzing. And in that case, it had a lot to do with spreadsheets and, and so forth, but, and communicating. And that's why I was in journalism first. And I, don't, I didn't want to have a life where I disappeared. I wanted to come back and, and use what I had in the public realm. And it seems to me that there's a through line between the, the journalism you started with, the name you made for yourself as an analyst by being someone who was willing to go make a big splash and say, I think Amazon's going to go to $400 when it was, I don't know, 98 bucks. Something like that? Something like that. Something like that. And then what I saw you do when I worked for you for that year and subsequently, which is saying, there's no point in sort of going, uh, if it could be one or the other or this or that, let's go out and say, this thing is going to happen. This thing is terrible. This thing is horrible. This thing is great. Let's, let's go to the edge one way or the other. And it seems like there's a connection between someone who was able to make that Amazon call and someone who's able to figure out, let's get someone's attention on a screen. Is that fair? I think that the uh, – it's interesting. I was at a breakfast with Thomas Friedman from the New York Times the other day, and he was talking about the different roles in journalism. And he said, look, if, if basically we're in the lighting business or we're in the heating business, and sometimes we're in both. Light, news, you're reporting things, educating people. Uh, heat, if you're a columnist, your job is to provoke and make people think about something and and so forth. And and. Adding to that, what what I learned on Wall Street is the job of an analyst is to take a big, compl- complex set of facts and reduce it to buy or sell. That's it. You, you have to do that. That is your job. And so over time, 
I became trained in that, which is, okay, here's a situation, analyze it, make a decision. And it turns out that that is actually a very valuable skill for a columnist, at least. And, and it's been very interesting to watch the evolution of Business Insider because I think in the early days, we had that mix. We did some reporting and we also did some provoking with yep. columns. And that's exactly the way it has evolved. And I would say, actually, Business Insider over the last few years has moved much more into reporting we do very little of the column writing that we did and, and the, the sort of take writing that became that grew out of the blogosphere. Although that is something that I think there's a big opportunity for. And we do have folks like Josh Barrow and, and others who are exceptionally good at it. It also but, seems like that was an idea that at the time that you were doing it and, and you were very clear about you were modeling yourself in some ways after Huffington Post and Gawker, which were sort of pushing those sort of takes and provocative stuff, that that's all been sort of baked into the internet now. It, it's no longer a crazy idea to, to imagine that someone has a provocative take and they're going to publish it on the internet. And, you know, as many people pointed out, the New York Times now has sort of an aggregation desk where they say, here's what's happening on social media. Um, and all this stuff is sort of, the landscape sort of looks more homogenous in some ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that what you're describing is a modern newsroom. That is what we have tried to build. We never, we didn't set out to, to rebuild a newspaper and try to figure out how to make it work. We didn't want to build a TV network. We wanted to figure out what was endemic to digital and how the model worked there. And it, there are profound differences. And I would say they're they're, di digital is as different from print and TV as they are from each other. And we have figured out over time through lots of experiments, many of which didn't work at all, what works in digital and how to build a newsroom that is self-sustaining and, and ultimately can grow from where we are now, which is about 200 journalists to um, hopefully over time, thousands of journalists around the world um, when we get there in, in terms of being able to afford it. But it's, it's, it's very different. And we wanted that. And, and, and now that we have that, I do think that we're, we're also seeing a lot of other newsrooms modernize effectively. And you, it's a different organization. It's a different approach to storytelling and distribution. And Folks like the Times are doing a good job of that. I want to talk about models and, and, and types of content in a, in a minute. Um, but I did want to go back to memory lane a couple more times. There's something that always stuck with me working for you a year for that year. I don't know, three or four months into it, Elliot Spitzer, who, who you said had been sort of the, the guy who had taken you down, the former New York attorney general, um, was ensnared in a prostitution scandal. Splash all over the New York Post, splash on the internet. I remember you going, oh, look at this. And then all of a sudden, just this slew of calls started coming into you because everyone wanted to know what, what Henry Blodgett, who'd been taken down by Elliot Spitzer, thought about Elliot Spitzer being taken down. And not only did you not respond to those calls or get on the phone and gloat, like, I don't remember you even, like, offer giving yourself a flicker of a smile, which would be, I think, a normal human reaction would be, ah, some comeuppance for, for Elliot Spitzer. And, and I don't know if it's gentlemanliness or a scary lack of emotion, but I was really taken by sort of how calm and you didn't allow yourself any kind of victory dance. Did you think about, were you consciously sort of restraining yourself or is that just your personality? Well, by that time, I had already moved on to what I would describe as the next phase of an, yeah. a, an interesting relationship with Elliot Spitzer over time, which is that by that time he was governor of New York. He had 
come and talk to Slate, where I was working at the time. Right, you'd had a meeting with him. I I met him for the first time in the food line at the buffet at Slate when he came to talk, when he was running for governor. And I said, hi, you know, you wrecked my life. And he's like, well, that's my job. And I said, well, okay, but, you know, you wrecked my life. And I didn't think, anyway, we sort of got there. But so... uh, By the way, this is not like people who fight on cable TV for a living in the green room being pally, like he did wreck your life. He cost you millions of dollars and got you uh, yes, fired from Wall Street. Uh, absolutely. And he's, but what, what he has always said, look, is it wasn't personal. And, and I agree with that, although I did feel like I was quite singled out by him. But then it went to where after the whole thing collapsed for him, he came back by writing at Slate. There was this odd echo, and then he w- invited me on his TV show at CNN. And uh, you know, ultimately, obviously, he, he had his big fall from grace as well. So I feel like we've actually had some experiences in life that we can relate to each other. And one of the things somebody said to me, a very wise person, when I was in the middle of what happened to me in, in 2002 or, or whatever it was, is he, he basically said, look, I know it seems like your life is over, Take a long view. Focus on the long term. Focus all of your energies on that. And ultimately, it's not that you're going to forget about this. It's part of you now. But it, it, it will seem like a long time ago. And This is like it, the advice that's really easy to give and that's to right. receive, it seems like, well, that doesn't, that's not really going to help I, it me. It was hard at the time, but, but that has proven absolutely true. And life is long. And I, and I would say, I haven't spoken to Elliot in a while, but we had lunch last year together. And I, look, we've, we've both been through a lot. And it is a, it's another example of, wow, life is long. Who paid for lunch? I think he did, as a matter of fact. I owe him lunch, good, it sounds like. Good for you. <laughs> and then the, the other bit of history I'm interested in, because it affects me, um, I made money when you sold this company. You uh, did indeed. Thank you for that. I'm a journalist who had a, an exit. It's a very rare group. The history of sort of how you got to that point is interesting to me, because from the outside, it looked like you had this same sort of trajectory of any successful startup. And granted, there are very few of those where you raised ever-increasing amounts of money, and then eventually you, you sold and had a, had a, had a great outcome. But I've seen you allude to this. At one point, it looked like you were going to run out of money. When was that? Uh, well, what we did was the mission of the company was to figure out what works in digital. It's a new medium. It's going to involve a new model, new approach yeah. and distribution. We've got to figure that out, and we've got a very limited time with which to do it because the sand is running through the hourglass in terms of cash. And every year, we set our budgets to get to break even by the end of next year knowing that we would have an opportunity to maybe raise additional cash and go more aggressively as we wanted. And so for so the to fir- behave in a lot of ways like a regular startup, which is grow as fast as you can and then raise money when you need more money. Exactly. But we didn't, what we didn't want to do was ever set a budget that required us to raise capital down the road just because I've just seen too many companies go through these horrible So not like a standard where- re- venture-backed company, which is actually achieve some sort of sustainability at some point. We wanted to have that every time, every year. Every time we went out and raised money, we set a model to get to break even with the resources that we had. And what happened is that every year we were doing well enough that we felt like if we invested more, we can do even better next time. So we went out and raised more money. And and so the first year we self-funded the three partners, uh, the three of us, 
And then, then we raised our first institutional round, and then it was a much bigger round, then Jeff Bezos came in. And so over eight years, we ended up raising $56 million, yep. I think. And each time we did it, we would set the budgets for the next year or two to get us back to break even. Um, and so, but the whole model, again, it was, it was designed on, on figuring out a sustainable model for, for digital journalism. And, and one of the strengths that we had is we didn't come into it with a lot of fixed ideas of what that was going to look like. And as I said before, hundreds and hundreds of experiments of which a handful have worked and have now propelled. So us what wasn't there a year where you, were you nearly, we nearly were, went yeah. to zero? I mean, we, in the middle of the financial crisis, we, we had grown nicely year over year. But it was a year in which suddenly fundraising got incredibly difficult, and um, fortunately, we were we had a nice investor come in, and and we raised money at about the same valuation yeah. as we had the prior round, which a lot of companies are doing now. So we didn't get to where we were within minutes of it, but if, in another few months, we would have been struggling. So you, you sold in 2015. This was the same year that all of a sudden it seemed like all the venture capitalists had said. Why would you invest in media companies? That makes no sense. We're suddenly throwing money at media companies. Vox, where I work, had raised a bunch of money. BuzzFeed was raising a bunch of money. Everyone was raising money. You guys sold. Did you think about sort of, all right, what does the market look like and maybe we should get out at the top? Because that seems to be in some ways what happened. Um, since then, things have gotten a little more wobbly for media companies. No. we. I mean, we had a basically, again, like a flexible approach, which is in, I think, a year before we ended up selling the company, we raised a big round for us. Now it sounds like chicken feed, but in those days, $25 million was a lot of money. Yeah. We did it because we wanted to invest very aggressively in the UK in launching a property beyond a business, which is Insider, which is off to an incredible start, in investing more in Business Insider and more in subscriptions. We wanted to go more aggressively than we had. And, and we knew that if we did that, if we if we then would make a decision like, are we going to raise another bigger round behind it? And what happened instead was as we started to think about that, Axel Springer decided they, they wanted to increase their investment because they had actually invested in the $25 million round by buying us. And again, had it not been a good match of their culture, journalistic right. DNA, wanting to keep the company together and so forth, I don't think we would have done it. And I, and I think- You would that, have kept going and raised around. Absolutely. Because I, I really believe that we are still in the midst of an incredible opportunity for digital media. And I think the whole, all the tectonic plates are now smashing together. We've had the last 20 years have been about print getting disrupted by digital. Next 20 years are going to be about TV getting disrupted right. by digital. You've seen companies like Vice and others. And that's the thesis, include, but it's one thing to have the thesis. It's another thing for you to have built a company for 10 years and decide, all right, I'm going to keep building it versus selling it. And by the way, you're going to be working there for years to come, I believe, right? They've got I, some I mean, kind of long-term incentive in place. Long-term, and, 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 and you're working. It's not like you're some some founder sell the company and the expectation is in a couple of years you, you leave, but you're going to Las Vegas at CES and doing ad meetings and people know you. The idea of Henry going to Las Vegas, that's not something you do for fun. <laughs> that's not your kind of town. It's funny. I've actually liked CES oh, you've come around? the last right. couple of years, but I had not, you're right, I had not been there for a long time. You're not a, you're not um, a flesh presser. So yes, no, we're, we're still working. They're, they're working you specifically. Well, I'm working myself. I mean, we, we are working as a team. And, and the last year, as I talked about some of the challenges last year, that's when the team really comes together. It's it, everybody looks like a hero when the wind's behind yep. you, and when the wind starts turning your face, that's when the team really comes together. And so I'm 
just tremendously proud of the, what we've done the last year. The the Axel deal, they they wanted to buy the Financial Times instead of buying you guys. That's what I read. They're going to spend a billion dollars, and they thought they had bought it. Their own reporters were reporting, and they that they'd uh, been sold to Axel, and then the Japanese bought it instead. If that deal hadn't gone through, would they not have purchased you? Were those things tethered? I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I actually think that there are interesting opportunities for how Business Insider could work with the Financial Times or even another publisher. We're reaching a different, we're reaching the digital generation. Um, they're reaching a much older demographic. So there, there would have been interesting opportunities there. So I don't know what they would have done. But yes, but as I said, we're, we're happy that we ended up together. You mentioned Insider. This is something uh, Nick Carlson, who's your star writer for years, um, is doing for you. And it's my understanding is it's your attempt to do distributed media, right? You create content that will live many, many places, Facebook primarily, Twitter, other places. And sort of secondarily, there's an Insider.com site. And so the idea is to find viewers where they are, find readers where they are, basically on Facebook. How's that working? That's right. I mean, in addition to the programmatic shift, the, the other things that are happening are the big shift to mobile, obviously. There's a big shift to video. <clears throat> there's a big shift to distributed, which is exactly what you're describing. And we made a decision internally, well, we can either fight that and we can continue to play the old game, which is try to get people back to the site, or we can embrace it and basically view .com, businessinsider.com, and this is insider.com, as one distribution channel of many. Um, and when Insider started, we did two things. One, they were outside of our outside of business. They're focused on lifestyle, food, travel. It's an even younger demographic than Business Insider. And then second, they fo- they started with video, and they started, as you say, with distributed and Facebook, Instagram, other platforms are the, are the prime. And and for about the first six months, that's what they did. Then ultimately, we added a, a website, which is growing incredibly rapidly as well. But it was <clears throat> very interesting to learn by building something that was just distributed in the beginning. And we learned a ton from that that we then brought back to Business Insider. So what a lot of people, because a lot of people have done this <clears throat> distributed uh, strategy in the last <clears throat> couple of years, and for various reasons, but the main one is, look, all the eyeballs are over on Facebook and secondarily Snapchat and Twitter, so let's go there. And then sort of hope we figure out a, a model where we make money from those eyeballs. Either we bring them back or we figure out some way to show an ad to them. Um, but a lot of people have been frustrated with that, I think, primarily because Facebook has not been generating either the ad dollars, they think, or it's not bringing referral traffic. What's your experience like with them? So we are thrilled with the way distributed is developing. And, and I'll give you some uh, backup on that. I mean, we've grown from zero views on Insider and overall to now two and a half billion views a month distributed across everything. That includes Business Insider as well. Um, <clears throat> the vast majority of our views across our properties now off-site, we're doing about three and a half billion overall views, um, of which almost three quarters are, are off the site. So there's still a very vibrant community coming in, but then there's also huge readership and viewership offsite. Um, our revenue from distributed has been growing incredibly rapidly. How are you making money from those views that are happening offsite? Many different ways, often a revenue share. Facebook is a revenue share, for example, and we have revenue shares in, in place with our other platform partners. Some of it is licensing, but it, it, most of them are, are revenue share. And it's just growing incredibly rapidly. And and if you step back and you think about what do we know the world is going to need, people are always going to want great stories. They're always going to want to be informed about what's happening. And we are great at 
telling those stories, figuring out what's happening, and then distributing them in this environment where people want them, when people want them, wherever they happen to be. And you have to embrace distributed to do that. So for us, because we are building the business based on the economics that we can get from all forms of distribution, and that includes our websites, but it really includes Facebook. It includes our other distribution partners as well. We are building the business based on those economics. And with those economics, it works very well. It does not work, again, to support traditional print or television economics. And I think a lot of the frustration is traditional companies looking at Facebook and saying, hey, you know, we've got thousands of journalists over here and what you're paying us won't support them. And, and therefore, you know, we need more from you. This is not working for us. When in fact, it really is working. You're saying if, if you, you produce it cheaply enough. Yes, but it's not just about cheap. It's also about producing the kinds of stories that people want mm-hmm. in the medium. As you remember from our loading dock days, people bring to digital this idea that what we all want as digital users is a clone of a newspaper or the clone of a 24-hour cable Right, which is a natural thing to think because that's how media always works. You make the thing you knew how to do it the last time. That's right. But it turns out it's just very, very different. The way we consume news, we want different news coming in different ways. It's a very visual medium. It is a medium that has broken down the walls between publishers and producers to where we're getting a stream from lots of different publishers and producers, and that is great. It's a very diverse world that we're seeing. And it's also also changed is based on, in, in large part, what Facebook's telling you it wants, right? So Facebook is now saying we would like longer videos and you guys will have to adapt to that and make videos that keep people's attention for a longer amount of time. And I think what will happen with that is Facebook will observe that sometimes you want a long video just the same way that sometimes you want a long in-depth narrative or investigation of something and sometimes you want short I wasn't expecting this but that was an awesome way to spend six seconds or 30 seconds right because by the way in Facebook's world 90 seconds is is their minimum is what they consider long or at least the minimum for long that's right and and in watching my myself and all of our team and people out in the world including my family the way they they consume media. My daughters will sit there and go through short videos, long videos, all mix, whatever they like. It can be excellent. And, and so I think this idea, I think it's, it's very smart for Facebook to diversify into longer. And they are building a special section to do that. But I think what we've discovered is, in fact, short-form video is great. It is a huge opportunity. You can still tell stories in, in an incredibly fast way. And we're thrilled about that opportunity. Like, it, the world is not just interested in hour-long documentaries. Last question. This is this ties in, actually. Uh, we're on week two, amazingly, of the Trump administration. It seems like it's been years already. In my mind, you you guys, early on, earlier than most people, jumped right on Trump. He announced and you said, we are going to cover everything that Donald Trump says and does. The TV network, notably CNN, also did that, but a little more trepidation, and they sort of treated him like a goof, and you jumped in with both feet. You got some criticism for that, for sort of, I think, um, some people said, well, you're, why is Henry Blodgett promoting Donald Trump. Eventually, you did make a. How long was the movie? Was it? A, was it an hour long movie? Thirty minutes. A thirty Trump minute movie. Nation. Available your, on Amazon. Uh, High end video. Yeah. Do you have any second thoughts about the way you treated Donald Trump as a news story during that cycle? No, because if Donald Trump was immediately compelling, and to 
ignore that and blame the media. It's just crazy. I mean, we sit there and we look at what folks are interested in. And he, for uh, for better and worse, is just an incredibly compelling media personality. He came in and smashed into the political scene. I think the best magazine cover that I saw was when he was doing the belly flop in the pool with the 17 other Republican challengers where he's just destroying everybody. And that was his impact on the race. And based on traveling with him and going to one of his rallies, it was obvious that a lot of Americans were relating to what he had to say. And and so, no, I think we're incredibly glad that we covered him seriously from the beginning. What do, what do your German owners make of Donald Trump? I imagine they have some perspective they may have shared with you. I, well, I think that along with lots of the rest of the world, people are startled by what is going on in this country. And and I have to say, from a business That's a value neutral term, right? Well, from, so from a business perspective, some of what President Trump has been saying and is saying is actually great for us all to hear. One, one of the things that has gone wrong in American business over the last 30 years is that we have gone from a business environment that embraced all of the different constituencies that good companies serve. And those include customers and employees in addition to shareholders. We have gone from that to an environment where it's just all about shareholders, screw employees, customers are secondary. It's just all about ROI and And this cash is not flow. revisionist for me because you've been writing this for years that you people need to pay their workers more and you would get all this ba- feedback from people saying, Henry, what kind of left yeah, are Yeah, exactly. We've gotten into this crazy environment where it's, it's like there's this somehow a law out there. You're supposed to pay people as little as you can. Come on. It's always a choice. And, and one of the things that Trump identified relatively early was, you know, we got to take better care of people who are actually working for a living in this country. And it would be nice that if it's just business saying that's part of what we do rather than it being legislated or rather than unions having to demand better pay. And that is what Trump has tapped into. And so, so that overall idea that we should think about employees as business people is great. That is a better form of capitalism, something that business deciders stand stood behind, like constituency, taking care of all the different constituencies. Almost almost socialist in a way. It isn't at all. It's more like an ecosystem. I mean, you look at it, like it, people are like, oh, well, the only people who add value are the shareholders and the entrepreneurs, you know, without them, like everybody else is it, irrelevant. It's just crap. I mean, we are all benefiting from this incredible society that we live in, the legal framework that we have, incredibly deep capital markets. Yes, entrepreneurs and investors are very important, but incredibly educated, smart, ambitious workforce, this perpetual improvement. Like, we're all in this together. Right, and legislating that you pay your employees a decent wage, right? That's to some people strikes you as, well, that's government. And and by the way, it's, it's... Trump is going to be conflicted on this because he's oh. going to labor secretary who wants to pay people as little as possible. So there's going to be some there are plenty of conflicted things. And and it, my only point has been it would be great if we didn't have to legislate any of it and we didn't need unions because everybody who ran a business it was much more of a holistic thing saying we're all a team. It's a privilege to be here. Sure, the business has to make money, but hey. We also need to create great lives for our folks and our customers and, and so So they forth. can buy so, things. Exactly. Right? The Henry Ford motto. So, so that is what I would say about Donald Trump is that fundamental premise and the fact that we should take care of ourselves too, our workforce globally, not just in the United States, is good. And then obviously there are many things that conflict with a 
strong business environment like the threat of tariffs and trade wars and, and all that is, is kind of scary. Yeah, I think you did a – one of the things I saw from you in the run-up to the election was this will be what Donald Trump's first 100 days will be Waking like. Waking up to President Trump. Yes. Exactly. Was this – did you write that after the election or before No, nope, that was before the election. Before the election. So have you gone back to revisit that? Uh, no, because I remember it pretty clearly. And, yeah, how'd you and do? so far it's pretty spot on, yes, in terms of the storytelling and the behavior. And, and he's very quick to make decisions and, and so forth. So, so far it's pretty close. So is that a – do you feel good? Do you feel like, all right, well, I, I saw what this is going to look like and then it's going to end well, or boy, we, we should start running for the hills? No, I, I mean, look, I, I respect American and U.S. democracy, and I don't, the election was stunning to a lot of people, but Americans spoke, they elected him, he was perfectly legitimate. Obviously, we still have a lot of investigating to do about whether there were foreign intervention in the election and, and so forth, but there's no question about that. Now the question is, what if these policies are actually going to move us toward the better future that we all want and what's distracting and ultimately what is fundamentally American? And I think that one of the reasons uh, there has been so much focus on what President Trump has done thus far is in addition to making quick decisions and action, which a lot of people support, he is also advocating some things that are not just un-American, but I would say are anti-American. We have from the beginning in this country, celebrated and encouraged a free press and the First Amendment and to have an administration building an attack on the vast majority of the media is frightening. And then tariffs and trade wars and the travel ban that we got over the weekend, these are anti-American ideas. And I, I think that the administration will continue to see huge pushback on those. I'm going to read about it in Business Insider. Uh, you certainly will. Henry, thank you for your time. We tried to, I think I tried to do this for a year to get you out here. Well, so thank you for being well persistent. <laughs> thank you for coming. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Peter. Hope you guys liked listening to it as well. Again, I think we're just about a year into this. I like doing these things. I love that you guys like listening to them. I love it when you tell me you like listening to them. It's great if you tell people on Twitter, tell them on the street, write a Medium post about it. I don't care as long as you are happy to spread the word. If you're listening to this so you know you can get this on iTunes, Google Play Music, you know how to get the other podcasts, Kara Swisher's Recode Decode, Lauren Good's Too Embarrassed to Ask, Recode Replay, where you can hear things like the Code Media Conference, which is coming up in a couple weeks. I'm not even going to promote it because you know how to find it now. No need to push that anymore. Thanks to Digital Media. Thanks to our awesome sponsors, Amazon Web Service and HostGator. Thanks, guys. See you next week.